0: This is kind of a larger question that people sometimes approach in the wrong way. I'm not sure that in these kinds of cases, centralization is necessarily bad. I think the important question is not that it's decentralized or centralized, it's that the potential for a monopoly is impossible.
1: Hey, I'm Derek Bernard. I've been producing, editing, and making the music for the Hacker Newton podcast from day one. Lately, I've been reading a lot of Hacker Newton and kept coming back to articles by Noam Levinson. So I decided to send him a message. Coming up, I hop on the other side of the mic to have an open conversation about the current and future blockchain landscape. We discuss its effect on the global ecosphere, its potential, and its failures, and just if technology could only. It's a great episode. Stick around. Lose creeping in every week. It's time to find a job you love. Indeed Prime connects tech talent to software, DevOps, and other knowledge worker roles with leading companies like eBay, Barclays, Vodafone, HomeAway, and more across 90 cities. Whether you're looking or hiring, get the right match for you based on location, skills, and salary. Candidates join totally free and also get access to resume reviews, one-on-ones with technical career coaches, work style assessments, and negotiation tips to seal the deal. Join now at indeedprime.com/hackernoon to flip the script on the job search. That's indeedp r i m e.com/hackernoon. Mr. Levinson, hello, Derek. How do you do?
0: Very, very well.
1: Good, good. I've discovered you on Hacker Noon. I enjoy reading what you write. It seems like an intelligent mix of the finance and the blockchain, which sort of touches on revolution in a way, mm-hmm. subtle, but it's there. And it, I think, it speaks to a lot of people. Sometimes I wish it was a little less subtle. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I- how can you do right? What can you do exactly? I mean, there's blood in the streets. I guess that's what it has to come down to sometimes. That, not to suggest that's what we need, but...
0: I mean, I think it's not necessarily that, that that blood in the street is what we need, but I think it's important to recognize that blood in the street does not necessarily signify that things have failed or that things aren't heading in the right direction.
1: Yeah. I mean, you never know how, how things turn out. It's been a long time since we've had a madman try and take over the world. Yeah. Right? It seems like we're kind of due, historically speaking. It does.
0: I think that we've come a long way from that time period and reached a period in human history where Maybe in most countries, we have a lot of checks and balances on the ability for a single madman to come in and disrupt things like they did in the past. But the reality is our institutions, I think, are never quite as strong as people sometimes think that they are. I think it'd be beneficial if people would understand how the institutions, how the system works at a foundational level to understand that really what it comes down to is personal responsibility for all of us. And we can't just count on the institutions holding against all odds.
1: They never seem to have. They never seem to
0: have, exactly.
1: I mean, historically speaking, all of them have failed.
0: All of them have failed. Right. You know, I think it speaks to human progress as well. As a species, as humankind, if we're not making progress, then what are we doing here? But at the same time, progress is dangerous and, and progress opens up a lot of room for error and error leads to many bad things.
1: Yeah. Oh, I mean, and great things too at the same time, right? So it's like, how do you guide forces. Like the cryptocurrency thing seems to be a force of some kind. It kind of rode more hype and hope than it delivered, or at least apparently delivered.
0: I think crypto is an excellent example of how absolutely difficult it is to try to guide progress, to try to guide technological development to a certain outcome. And I actually wrote about this in a recent article of mine in terms of bringing in regulation into the world of decentralized assets. And, you know, I think an important consideration is everybody wants something out of blockchain, everybody wants something out of cryptocurrencies. And for a lot of people, the means to achieving that is they want it now, they want it quickly. And governmental regulation or centralization is always a very appealing method forward. And I think my argument would be that exactly as you said, Progress is very difficult. We have no idea where this technology is going to go, as well as the fact is, it's so fucking complicated that the only way that we can really move forward with it is to allow it to naturally evolve. And for it to naturally evolve, we need to allow market forces essentially to guide things. We need to keep regulation as minimal as possible. We need to recognize that there's absolutely a place for centralized chains or semi-centralized chains or enterprise solutions. but. In reality, what's going to be revolutionary is the decentralized tech, and it's going to be clunky, it's going to be painful as we try to achieve it, but the only way that we're going to reach anything significant is if we go through those pain points.
1: I first learned about Bitcoin right around 2009, and it was like the way this guy, he was, yeah, then we just, and then we could buy this or that or the other thing, and it's like, well, that's interesting, I like that idea, I didn't give it much thought, and then it came into mainstream society, or at least the spotlight, in a major way because of the fluctuations of the market. I wonder if the profit motive being the basis for our values, I wonder if that needs to be left behind for this next cryptocurrency revolution or whatever. Well, what what would be the problem is what's the alternative to the profit model? And I don't know, right? I mean, or maybe it's not that it would be obliterated, but maybe it has less importance in the fabric of of our being. It seems like capitalism is there. And if it's not successful, if it hasn't grown a little bit, even if it's just a little bit. But if it's not growing, then it's not as successful somehow.
0: You know, I think there's many great aspects about capitalism. And I don't necessarily know that I have a better solution for it. I think that the profitization of everything is extremely harmful, but at the same time, nothing provides an incentive like profit. But I, I would be interested to see how decentralized technology could offer other elements, whether it's reputation, Although I would also argue that probably when it comes down to it, the benefit of having a good reputation is is still profit. It's still a little bit difficult to get away from that. But you know, the, the truth is, I've I've been looking at um, the Wikipedia model very recently in terms of I would say one of the most successful decentralized solutions out there. And people aren't making money off of of being Wikipedia editors, and they're really they're doing it altruistically, and they're doing it because they want to contribute. And there's certainly an element of social recognition within the wikipedia community you rise up as you edit articles and contribute valuable content and there's reputation attributed to it but people aren't making money out of that um, and and it's an interesting system of altruism and reputation that's come together to create a really reputable platform
1: it has a kind of a labor of love kind of quality to it You're where yeah. you do it just because it's it's it feels like the right thing to do maybe or
0: yeah or it's you know your passion to educate people or whatever whatever the motivation is but despite what despite what uh middle school teachers tell you wikipedia is yes
1: yeah, so, okay so uh where did you where did you grow up
0: um i actually grew up in alaska oh no doubt. Uh, like anchorage um, or um i grew up in a, in a small town but i about 12 years old, we moved to moved to the big city, to Anchorage. And then I actually came to Israel when I was 18. And I've been back and forth a little bit. I worked in Washington, DC for a bit in the US Congress. And I would say about three years ago, I started getting involved in blockchain. I think that how people became involved in decentralized assets and blockchain is always the most interesting story because nobody gets there through traditional means. But I kind of lucked into it, and really, it just captured my attention. I felt that there was a huge amount of potential. Really, at the time, where unfortunately I wasn't one of the first people in, you know, 2008, 2009, who understood the significance of Bitcoin. But as use cases of blockchain started to expand slightly, I was there, and I think I kind of approached it from more of an economical and political perspective in terms of bringing the decentralized wave to finance, to technology, and all of the potentials in that. And I got involved in the startup world here in Israel. Israel is known as Startup Nation. We have more startups per capita than any other country in the world, which is a whole interesting topic in itself. I got involved in the startup world here and worked or attempted to start up a, a venture fund and was largely successful during the bull run, although I think everyone everyone struggled when the, when the bear run came around. But learned a lot of valuable lessons and I think gained a lot of insight in terms of how the market is evolving, in terms of how companies are approaching these questions, both from an entrepreneurial side as well as from an enterprise side for those companies that are looking at blockchain as a solution to problems that they're dealing with today. And since I've stayed a bit in the venture in the world, but I've also moved on to more hands-on work with a number of startups here in Tel Aviv, globally, as well as doing my own research, my own writing, which I published, and some various Events, But you know, I think for me, it's kind of a two-pronged approach in that I, I want to be engaged with the companies that I see um, as being very valuable to the space, as well as to try to bring the thinking to elevate it a little bit, to elevate it above just the simple, what company is going to do well? What currency should I invest in? To more of the question of why is decentralized technology important? How is it going to be impactful? What questions should we be asking and, and what kind of elements should we be focusing on?
1: Sunday night blues creeping in every week. It's time to find a job you love. Indeed Prime connects tech talent to software, DevOps, and other knowledge worker roles with leading companies like eBay, Barclays, Vodafone, HomeAway, and more across 90 cities. Whether you're looking or hiring, get the right match for you based on location skills and salary. Candidates join totally free and also get access to resume reviews, one on ones with technical career coaches, work style assessments, and negotiation tips to seal the deal. Join now at IndeedPrime.com slash HackerNoon to flip the script on the job search. That's Indeed, P R I M E.com slash HackerNoon. Mm -hmm. and you were and you've been thinking more recently about this layer one versus layer two uh, solutions right scalability solutions
0: yeah absolutely i think i mean i think scalability right now is one of the if not the biggest question going around the space whether it's for ethereum or bitcoin because the reality is that the technology is is not currently scalable You, you know we've seen enormous fees for for bitcoin we've seen pretty brutal overhead in terms of the Ethereum network and the network not being able to process enough transactions to keep up with demand. And I think what it has led us into is much more of a philosophical question in terms we understand, or at least we should understand, that decentralized technology and decentralization inherently has trade-offs. You know, you can look at the way that democracy works in comparison to a monarchy or a dictator. Monarchies, dictators, when you put one person in charge and you say, make something happen, it's going to happen. It might not be exactly how you want it. It might not be for good, but it's going to be a lot more efficient than democracy, which is inherently made to be slow and made to be calculated. And when you look at decentralized technologies from that perspective, you don't have a single head and you have billions of dollars of assets being handled. Perhaps you have decentralized anonymous organizations that are actually managing companies or corporations in the future. There's a lot at stake. So the question now is, how do we achieve scalable Technology And how do we do it in a way that doesn't compromise too much on the premise of decentralization? And so with layer one and layer two, you have layer one, which is obviously targeting the core layer, the base protocol of Ethereum, of Bitcoin. And you have layer two, which is a higher level solution. So it's trying to implement various protocols, various solutions on top of the protocol. So the Lightning Network is a good example of the layer two solution that has recently gained traction. It's been in development for a long time but it's been skyrocketing lately. And I think that we see interesting questions arising from how that's playing out. And the debate always rages on in terms of people saying we need to provide layer one solutions and other people saying that layer two solutions are the best method because ultimately in some ways they're a little bit safer. They don't introduce as much risk because you're not targeting the core layer of the protocol. So if the Lightning Network fails, the core layer of Bitcoin is still perfectly fine, still with scalability issues, but hasn't been compromised. And then you can try to introduce another layer two solution. I personally think that we're going to see a mismatch of various solutions. I think that in all the good that the Lightning Network is providing and all the potential that it has, it will be relatively limited in its applications. It's more of a platform for transactions that don't need as much security, but need more speed. And I think that ultimately is going to be the kind of approach that we take in that people who are willing to sacrifice on decentralization for a little more efficiency for lower costs will have solutions that are more suitable for them. And then you'll have the kind of on-chain transactions that provide the security, provide the decentralization, but at a cost. And you'll have these kinds of two approaches and they'll converge like the Lightning Network and the Bitcoin Network does to providing very comprehensive solution for
1: people. And so does the Lightning Network have uh, centralized elements to it?
0: Great question. And, and that one's a, a question that is is pretty heavily debated. One, because no one exactly knows how the network is going to play out. The reality is what the Lightning Network does is it sets up payment channels between individuals. So I could, in the same way that if I went to a bar, instead of having to pay for every beer that I buy, I can open up a tab, drink all my beers, And then at the end of the night, I close my tab and pay the bar. And so the Lightning Network allows for people, individuals to open up channels between one another and transfer money back and forth and then settle the final amount on the blockchain. The problem with that is you can't open up payment channels with multiple people. And unless you want to make it where every time you want to do a Lightning Network transaction with another individual you have to go and open up a channel directly with them which isn't realistic because opening a channel is an on-chain transaction and you would have to pay bitcoin fees and have the bitcoin confirmation times and at that point you might as well just open up an on-chain transaction and so what people do is they essentially set up a system of routing so instead of me having to open up a channel directly with the person i want to send money to i can send money to bob who sends money to bill who sends money to john who has a payment channel open with the person i want to send money to now there's a lot of complications in that the way that the network works is i can't send money directly through that channel what i can do is essentially like send money to bill who has to then have money in his channel between he and bob and then he forwards so it's it's like jumps essentially hops money goes from and then the money goes. And the limitation of that is that the lowest amount of money you have in a single channel is the limiting factor. So I can't send more money than one of the channels down the line has in order to pass it along.
1: And so that all that would happen behind the scenes, right? The numbers would just balance out the way they balance out and then everything and else happens how it happens.
0: Wallet, you'd enter in a lightning address and all of that would happen behind the scenes, but it's all decentralized. So anyone who wants to open up a decentralized is
1: it i mean is it is it i mean i wonder it sounds to me like there's a layer right and an intermediary would be a centralizing component but
0: so the reality is what has happened is you have the hub and spoke model so you have big hubs that have a lot of money and they have a lot of connections within the lightning network so it makes it very convenient to just send your transaction to one of those hubs and have them route it to the person that you want to um, it opens up a lot of f- payment flexibility, and for them, it's advantageous because they're they're raking in a lot of fees. And so, what you see if you look at the network as a whole is you kind of have these these hubs popping up all around the network with lots of different people connected to them, which is criticized for being for being centralized. And in some ways, it is. But at the same time, and I think this is kind of a larger question that people sometimes approach in the wrong way, is that I'm not sure that in these kinds of cases, centralization is necessarily bad. I think what the, the important question is not that it's decentralized or centralized, it's that the potential for a monopoly is impossible. So it's perfectly fine if you have a you know, let's say the network has 50 semi-centralized hubs that are routing channels. But when it comes down to it, anyone can open up a channel with anyone and there's also risk to being those hubs they have to store a lot of their money in in hot wallets in internet connected wallets which have low security and so it disincentivizes people holding millions of dollars in these hubs and at the same time allows for if one of these hubs was to was to be corrupted was to start doing things maliciously Everybody else could connect to any of the other hubs. People could form their own hubs. It's an interesting question in terms of even our larger economy. Is Amazon too centralized? Is Amazon a monopoly? Um, and, you know, the, it's a very, it's, it's a question. sure there's, there's an answer to it um, on one yeah. hand. Ish. Ish. Yeah, exactly. Ish, because they've they've captured the market, but they've also, they're a monopoly because they've done it so well. It's not that they have an exclusive resource, it's not that nobody else can open and sell books or items on the internet. And in reality, I personally have benefited greatly from the efficiency and perfection that Amazon has brought into the e-commerce the marketplace. And so if you take that perspective on the Lightning Network, maybe it's a good thing that we have these more centralized hubs because it will provide that efficiency. But there is the fundamental question of you have efficiency and you have decentralization and it's a a spectrum.
1: You know what it sounds like to me is like a phase two kind of solution. Like first we got the blockchain and we went, oh my gosh. And then all of a sudden, oh, right. And then now it's like, okay, well, how do we, and it sounded what you described to me sounded like a lot of uh, mobility.
0: You know, and I think one of the most interesting, but also one of the most terrifying aspects of decentralized technology is is no one knows exactly how it's going to go. It's trial and error and it's understanding what solutions we bring forth, what people want out of these solutions. And I think for me, that leads me more towards putting more trust in layer two solutions. I personally, from a kind of a political or philosophical standpoint, and actually the political philosopher Tocqueville talked about this in terms of decentralization of administration is one of the most important elements of decentralization. So making sure that when it comes down to the execution of various elements of the network, that's decentralized and it's almost as small as possible. So when I say that, I'm thinking about the fact of you have these layer two solutions and you can have many of them that are all kind of doing the trial and error on their own, while the Bitcoin protocol stays more conservative in its approach. Because the uh, Bitcoin in itself would be, that would be the catastrophic part to fail. But if the Lightning Network tries something and it doesn't work, then we can we can try something else. And we can try something else. And, and then ultimately, when we find what works, and as the the kind of the economics of the, of the decentralization progress, then we can integrate those elements down into the layer one solutions.
1: I was reading this uh, blog, I guess it was by Vitalik but- Buterin, he seemed to see a world where layer one solutions are implemented, but all, so are layer two. Yeah. Like, and it's all kind of working in conjunction.
0: So when you take into perspective the direction that our technology, our economies are, are going, it makes a lot of sense. And I like to think of the economies on kind of various levels of, and also the technologies on on various levels. So you have companies and corporations on top and you have various decentralized organizations and you have the layers running beneath it, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum. And you have decentralized blockchains and you have more centralized solutions and they ultimately they're kind of able to connect and you have layer one and layer two and you have all of these different, almost like a transportation system and you have subways running underneath and you have highways and you have roads and people who want to go fast can get on the highway or the toll roads and people who want more flexibility can stay on the street roads and all of that ultimately if you do it right can provide this kind of flexible, seamless ecosystem.
1: Yeah, ecosystem was exactly the word I was thinking of. It even has a tone to it, depending on if there was a chain that got corrupted somehow. That speaks of the health of the community that is connected to that blockchain. And and that that probably influences all this movement into one. It's like, yeah. Exactly.
0: One of the aspects that really appeals to me in terms of decentralized technologies is that, unlike when you look at social platforms today, and whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, they hold real significance in our world and our political climate. You know, you saw Facebook did the test essentially of how they could manipulate elections, and obviously there was the whole the Russia scandal. One of the problems with Facebook and these platforms is that they're not open source. People can create other social media platforms, but your data belongs to Facebook. So you, if you want to leave Facebook, you can't just package up your data and bring it with you. But when you look at say Ethereum, Ethereum forks happen all the time. It's open source protocol. Anybody can fork the protocol, create another blockchain essentially, and Ethereum doesn't own the data. The data is on the blockchain. Anyone can see it, anyone can access it, and you can essentially take your data and go to another chain if you're not happy with what Ethereum is doing, if you feel like they're leading to a too centralized model or not enough centralization, whatever it is. But it allows for that flexibility for people to really kind of gravitate towards the solutions that work for them and not necessarily just the solutions that are out
1: there. And so let's talk for a second about widespread adoption. So we're talking about all this stuff. And I didn't know any of this until like maybe four months ago, you know, when I really started to look into blockchain and what it was all about. It seems like the more and more it grows and it stays in a secret community, it's going to create an inequality almost by its existence because there will be the people who have and the have nots.
0: What's important is to try to step back a little bit and look at it in terms of the history of the last 200 years. And when you look from that perspective, yes, blockchain has crashed. So many of the projects have lost 90% of their value. The potential that people hyped during the bull run, it's a failure. However, when you look at that larger picture and you see that 11 years ago, Bitcoin emerged. And 11 years ago, almost no one knew about it, except for people who were reading technology forums and were aware of it. And even amongst that group, many people weren't aware of it or didn't see the potential. And now 11 years later, not many people don't know what Bitcoin is. I totally agree. Many people don't understand the fundamentals of it. They don't understand how it works. But people know about Bitcoin. The whole market as a whole is approaching the trillion dollars dollar mark, we've expanded beyond just the means of payment of Bitcoin to platforms, to ICOs, to Ethereum, to decentralized assets of a whole different type. And so on that front, I think we've made incredible progress. And we've also attracted a lot of different entrepreneurs, a lot of different talent from the world to blockchain. And it makes a lot of sense that it hasn't yet succeeded. You know, I think that the bull run was great in that it put it on the radar for a lot of people. And you're right. Like for the average Joe, I don't know that blockchain is yet on the radar. But for entrepreneurs, for programmers, there aren't a lot of people who don't know about blockchain. Um, And I think that really now is when people are kind of getting down to business and they are working on projects and not just in a sense of like, let's do this as quickly as we can to put out an ICO and make a bunch of money. But okay, we had our fun, people made money, people lost money. And now we're really going to try to build solutions that work. And ultimately, the first solution that's able to be scalable and decentralized and provide people like to call it the killer app, the app that the decentralized application or the blockchain application that brings tons and tons of users. The incentive to be the first one to do that is enormous. And so in terms of that, I think we have a bright future ahead of us. I don't know that crypto is the solution for inequality of outcome. I think that blockchain and crypto is the solution for inequality of conditions.
1: Yeah, I Um, guess I didn't mean equality of outcome. Did I say that? No, uh, no, I I was kind of
0: abstracting from what you said. I mean, you know, absolutely people who hold like let's assume that things go according to plan people who hold bitcoin are going to be much more well off than people who don't hold bitcoin at this point in the future and you'll still have inequality and there will certainly be elements that are unfair but i think what blockchain does is it is it, it's really it's kind of the the equalizer among among nations among Economies, as long as you have a smartphone, you can purchase crypto, you can start your own ICO, you can fork a blockchain, and it doesn't matter what government you have above you, and it doesn't matter which country you're from. It's a global economy, and I think that it holds a lot of potential to serve as such and provide that economy for people all around the globe to tap into.
1: Yeah, I don't Uh, mean to, to, I'm not speaking from like a social justice perspective at all. uh, I just, I guess it seems like. If we continue in a direction that we're continuing, right, it will just sort of the, I mean, I knew quite a few people who became millionaires as a result of the rise of the Bitcoin. And that's a lot of millionaires all of a sudden. You know, and I'm just thinking more in terms of like the inequality will just still be there, I guess. Not not like rah, you know, but more like it'll be interesting to see the shift, though, if indeed there is a shift. What yeah, the shift? Like,
0: I saw an interesting graphic on Twitter recently that talked about if Bitcoin hit a million dollars, what the richest people in the world would look like. And Bill Gates is not on there, Buffett is not on there, Bezos is not on there. It's it's a very different. But at the same time, there's still people. There are billionaires, and there there's the rest of us. Right. Um, I think that's that's a reality. But at the same time, you know, if like Satoshi Nakamoto or whoever Satoshi Nakamoto, assuming he's still alive, assuming he or she still has their Bitcoin, they would be the richest person in the world. And, you know, I'm okay with that in terms of... Bitcoin reaches a million dollars and they were the one to create that technology. And it was such a disruptive technology. Yeah, they they deserve that money and they brought a lot of good to the world. And,
1: so there's and, uh, Yeah, there's definitely something interesting about capitalism in that it allows one to be agile, right? As long as you understand how the market is played and how you can make your way, it seems like it's kind of set up so that anybody can, as long yeah. as they have the wherewithal to do it. You know, I, I, I grew up in traditional public schooling and everything. And I didn't, it wasn't until after college that I realized that we were sort of trained to be factory workers, you know, which <laughs> yeah. is kind of, is kind of a weird, that's wait a minute. I don't want to be a factory where we weren't trained to be entrepreneurs.
0: And and on that front, like there's certainly inequality in terms of where you grow up and hmm. um, and people grow up to, and they're raised in a family. They go to schools where, where being a factory worker is the, the intended outcome. Um, but I right. think it's That's a good point. But it's also important to understand that like where capitalism from where capitalism emerged from was the aristocracy or class systems where you were born into a class and there was no social or class mobility. You were in the lower class or you were in the aristocracy, you were an iron worker, a farmer, whatever it was. And you were a farmer because your father was a farmer and his father was a farmer and all the way back. And there you had guilds and you had all of these elements that cemented your role in society and said, this is where you are and, and there are no other options. And today it's not perfect, certainly. And there's plenty of inequality in terms of where you grow up and what family and what socioeconomic class you're, you're from. But the reality is, is if we look at it in comparison to that perspective, there's an enormous difference. And we have poor people that become rich and we have people who are trained to be factory workers who start the most successful companies in the world. And we have all of these elements. And when it comes down to it, it might not be fair, but it's a lot more fair than it was.
1: Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I agree. I, I don't disagree with that. capitalism seems to be the best that, we've could, that we could come up with for, for now. You know what I mean? I wonder if in the future, there's going to be something else that, you know, that maybe even cryptocurrency could sort of enable you
0: know, I hope I so. I hope yeah. so. One of the, one of the concerns that I do have about blockchain about decentralized assets is what people call the Oracle problem. In terms of technology, Oracle generally refers to a source of information. So you can set up a website Oracle, which if you have a weather site, then you set up temperature sensors and those are your Oracles. They're the one bringing in the temperature data, putting it into your, into your website. And so the question is, how do you, how do you draw in that information in a decentralized way? So when you think about the fact that we have digital assets and we have real world assets today, the problem is linking those two assets. So if we want to create digital representations of real world assets, there's a lot of advantages to do so. You know, Imagine being able to take a real estate project and essentially break it into micro assets where you can have a million investors on some New York real estate project and they all hold their token and you don't need any centralized overseer managing those tokens. The problem is how do you create that link? And when it comes down to it, ultimately, we're still going to need real world entities controlling that link. You can digitize gold or you can digitize a diamond but what happens if somebody breaks into the safe where that diamond is stored and steals that diamond who owns it now is it the person with the digital variation of the diamond and ultimately we might have contract law and we might have courts and they'll uphold that ownership according to that digital asset but if that diamond is stolen to china where they don't care about our contract law then the person who has the diamond is the one that benefits and even when you look at something as simple as like a gambling platform and you say okay we're going to set up a decentralized betting platform on football games. Now this is like a much simpler solution to try to approach, but the issue is, is okay, now we're going to get scores that will come in and these scores will determine the outcome of the games. And how do we determine what the truth of the score was? are we going to trust ESPN or any of these other centralized sites that tell us what the score of the game was? Or maybe you have people who go to the game and they, on their phones, select exactly what the score was. And then you take the majority of those users. But even then, when you're considering that you have a majority determining the outcome, if there's enough money at stake, then the incentive for trying to manipulate that system becomes much greater. So how do you know someone's not going to go to the game and say, listen, there's a billion dollars at stake on this betting platform. Let's throw the results. I'll divvy up some of that money to everybody else. And so I think that that's one of the most significant questions that we have to breach if we want crypto and blockchain to be able to really revolutionize a lot of the systems that are in place today. And it's uh, one that I don't necessarily have a solution
1: for. And the idea is to to sort of sidestep big brother.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the goal is to try to set up decentralized elements for all of the layers down If we have decentralized layers at the top, but the bottom layers are all centralized, then it's not
1: really decentralized. No, right. So it'd be interesting to see how that all plays out. It seems so early in its evolution.
0: Yeah, very much so. I mean, very, very much so. I, You know, we, we're still talking about capitalism and how we perfected capitalism. And and I like I would argue that capitalism is in line with, or at least much more in line with the decentralized economic philosophy. And we haven't even gotten that one right yet. We're still temp- kind of tinkering with that one and figuring out what works. And so if we look at it from that perspective, blockchain is trying to do for technology and finance what capitalism did for economics or what nationalism did for the empirical system system that we had beforehand, or even what the Protestant Reformation did for the centralized Catholic Church. And all of those systems aren't perfect yet. And we're still tinkering with them. And we still have people that want different systems. And we're 11 years into the decentralized technology game. And I think that we have a long way to go. But at the same time, the evolution of technology is speeding up. The internet revolutionized things in a way that I don't know that had ever been seen before. And it happened in a generation.
1: You know, you mentioned all these different centralized becoming decentralized, and I just see this domino effect. And this may be even just the continuation of a domino effect. But it seems to be accelerating too, though. I mean, like you say, 200 years ago, it was around the industrial revolution and all of that was just sort of getting underway. And now look at where we are. I mean, we're talking across the, the world, right? Yeah. It's,
0: it, You're in San Francisco, I'm in Israel, and we're
1: yeah having a conversation yeah. right mind-blowing really if you think about it and so in the future some makes me wonder what else is going to fall you know as far as dominoes but it seems like we're tending in a direction of centralization with i don't know putin and then china's coming up obviously and they want to influence the world with their values and i think they're going to succeed to a certain degree you know like you said in one of your papers actually you talked about how china seems to be intelligently working with its blockchain yeah. startups and how this startups are starting to work together to form natural solutions rather than a more competitive kind of environment.
0: Yeah, and like, it's definitely more efficient, but the question is, is what's the end goal? And China is relying on the government to set that end goal. Whereas in the West, we don't rely on the government to set that end goal. And so if we can all agree on some desired end goal, then absolutely totalitarianism or the Chinese system is a better solution for that. But if we accept that perhaps we don't know what the best end goal is, then I think that the only way of going about it is through this painful trial and error process. But at the same time, I think that China is probably going to be one of the first to see real application for blockchain technology. You know, at the same time, I think it's important to recognize that the world we live in today obviously is not the world we're going to be living in in 50 years. And the world that decentralized technologies will have the most to play in is the world in 50 years and not the world today. I think it's appealing. It's easy to look at the world we're in today and say, oh, no one's going to use a decentralized asset. No one's going to rely on decentralized technology. We need to build enterprise solutions. We need to build solutions that make sense to the companies that we have operating today. But the reality is, I think if you look at the progression of technology that's happening today, and I also say like, I understand what a potential fallacy it is to try to predict the evolution of technology, but I think it's fair to say that we're moving very quickly towards automation, and we're moving very, very quickly towards having a world of interconnected devices, whether it's IoT, the Internet of Things, or automated cars or drones, where all of these systems are going to be talking to each other, they're going to be coordinating, they're going to be communicating, and they're going to need a trust framework. Assuming that unless we have a single dictator or a single company that controls all of these elements, I imagine we're going to have many different companies, many different individuals that we have, many companies that have automated cars that are trying to communicate, and we have drone delivery companies and we have IoT companies and all of these devices are going to need to communicate and we're going to need some kind of trust layer because for them to work, they're going to have to be able to communicate. You can imagine cars on a road. It's not going to be up to you and I to stop at a street light or to provide right away to somebody else. It's going to be the AI within each car communicating with each other. But assuming we have different car companies, we're going to have to have that location where they can communicate and they can do it in a way that both company can trust and verify the communication. And I think in that world, in the world where we have all of these interconnected communications, that's the world where blockchain and decentralized technologies and crypto has a real part to play. But we're we're not quite there yet.
1: Yeah, it seems like there's just a lot of moving parts at the moment, but it seems like it's also kind of converging in that direction.
0: I think it is converging in that direction. And it, I think the hardest part is to try to, you can't build things for the future, but you also can't build things for the present. You have to be trying to look forward, but also at the same time, you also have to be addressing the problems that we have today. And I think that we only reach the future by making incremental steps where each step is the right thing to do in the moment. And then ultimately we build and we can step back and see what we've built. But at the same time, you also have to be aware of the blueprint that you're building. And that's a tough <laughs> (laughs)
1: Yeah, we don't even know, right, how it's going to look. And then you get these regulators, they come in and they sort of put a stranglehold on everything because they don't understand it either. It seems like there's a transition from the old guard to the new guard that sort of needs to happen in order for that to really seem to take flight.
0: And nothing, I mean, nothing grinds my gears more than seeing the U.S., the SEC, your Congress come in and say, oh, this doesn't work or this isn't in line with regulations that we implemented years ago to manage an entirely different different type of security or entirely different type of world. I think that especially in terms of blockchain, in terms of technology, we have to let the private sector kind of determine that direction. Because look, like I certainly would not be the one trying to make regulation. I don't think I'm qualified to do so. I have no idea what kind of regulation. And I definitely know more than most of the regulators who are trying to create those regulations. I don't think anyone today is capable of trying to determine what regulation we need, what direction this technology should be taking. And the only way we can figure that out is if we just leave it up to people to determine to the market to determine
1: to yeah yeah the invisible hand of the market and everything essentially
0: yeah but at the same time there's a lot of risk to that and there's going to be a lot of growth pains
1: But I mean, there's kind of always risk, right? We're never really safe. We're never really in danger either, but we just sort of continue on down the road and shit happens, it would seem. I appreciate that. At the same time, I wonder if all the competition, it seems like it would spur innovation towards this profit motive, like we were talking about before, whereas I don't know that that's what China's doing necessarily. It seems like it's doing what it's doing for Mother China. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. China, they want to be on top of the world order. They have much less qualms about doing things for the greater good. I think in the West, we try to stay away from that philosophy. There's a saying in Israel, the righteous man follows the means and the wicked man follows the end. When you look at that in terms of the ends justify the means. And I think for China, the ends justify the means. They're willing to do anything provided that the end is a stronger China, is a China that has more strength than the international world. But in in the west we are focusing on the
1: means and so if we're thinking about in terms of who comes up with the first killer app for blockchain it, i guess i would wonder which model would be the one that would emerge quote unquote victorious and what would that even mean you know how would that look because it Actually, does seem like at first it's going to be centralized mm-hmm. if china does it first it'll be a centralized chinese blockchain that everybody somehow uses it stays connected to but then there will be these offshoots i would imagine of bastions of freedom we'll call them is that widespread adoption is there a need for that right now i guess i wonder about the need for any of it really
0: it's it's actually like a very interesting economical, philosophical battle happening. If you look at China in terms of the collective model and the West in terms of the capitalistic model, which will create the killer app. On one hand, you could say, well, definitely the collective model because they're committing all of their efforts towards one goal that they've all decided upon. But on the other hand, you could say, that's not how you innovate and that's not how ideas flourish. And on that logic, the West is going to be the place that creates the first killer app. I think it's an interesting question to to follow and see how that plays out.
1: Hmm. I guess we'll see in the coming decades. So if you were to give somebody some tips, if they wanted to get into blockchain, or maybe they've been in and been disillusioned by blockchain somehow because they lost a lot of money or whatever, this downturn, what would you say is a good strategy to pay attention to the blockchain space? That's a great question.
0: Um, I think that I would advise people to try to build their own framework. I think that instead of trying to go into the industry where there's so many things going on and there's so many different companies pitching ideas, I think I would advise that people first start with the simple question of why do I think blockchain is important? Why do I think decentralized technology is important? And where is decentralization going to impact first? And at that point, you can start to build yourself some criteria for what you're looking for. And then instead of you just going blindly into the industry and just being disillusioned and thrown between all these different forces, you have your framework, you have your criteria, and you're picking things that you feel fit into your framework. I would also say that just because people are saying things doesn't mean that it's true. I really dislike when I see people talk about, oh, back when the telephone first came out, no one could see the potential and you had all these different rich people and companies saying, oh yeah, the telephone or email or the internet's not going to have any role to play. And on one hand, it's a great indicator that no one knows and you have just as much right to know as anybody else. But on the other hand, just because that technology succeeded doesn't mean our Technology is going to succeed. I think you have to be very careful in looking at it and really trying to set a good set of criteria for yourself and then going forward and trying to find the truth for yourself and not listening to what anybody else is blabbering about.
1: Right. On. Okay, cool. It'd be great to have you on the show again at some point. Maybe we could check in over the course of Bitcoin. I've a lot. Yeah. All right, on, man. Good talking to you. Thank you, Derek. See you, Noam. It's great talking to Noam. You can follow him on Twitter at Noam Levinson, and you can read his writings on HackerNoon.com slash at Noam Levinson. Looking forward to interviewing more Hacker Noon contributing writers. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Hacker Noon podcast on iTunes and YouTube and be sure to follow us on social media. You can also find us at HackerNoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com. Until the next time, thanks for tuning in.